thanks, Bob. I actually think you have more powerful prayers than I do, but that, we'll talk about that later. Please join me in prayer. In fact, let's just do something a little bit different this time. All right, so bow your heads with me. Pray for yourself to actually receive the word right now. So just in your own heart, pray to the Lord. And as you're wrapping that up, would you pray for me as I present the word that it can go forth? Lord, we just want to thank you that we are allowed to approach your throne of grace. And we can boldly ask for our request to be met and that you hear us. Let us hear tonight what you want to say to each one of us. Let this word be personal. Don't let it just be information. Let it hit the mark. And we just thank you for this time. We welcome transformation. And we thank you for that as our inheritance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the restoration of identity. The restoration of identity. Um, I actually thought the picture was kind of interesting when Paula put it up. That actually, like, whoa, that, that's kind of intense. And so, where'd you find that picture at, by the way? Where's Paula? Oh, where'd you find that picture at? Oh, no, you don't have to. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. All right. Good. All right. Well, I thought that was a good image. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to actually begin to define what a biblical self-image is. And it's kind of interesting. Here we're created in the very image of God, and most people don't know how God sees them, doesn't know God's intent for them. They kind of see themselves really as, I'm just a sinner that's saved by grace, and they don't realize how much God values them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start the journey of restoring healthy biblical self-image. Uh, would you guys take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew 25, verse 24 uh, through 28. Matthew 25, verse 24 through 28. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with what we've called the, the recognition. If you and I think and we have a poor self-image, how would we actually recognize it? And I'm going to give you some things to actually pay attention to. And by the way, uh, just so we are all on the same page, um, unless you've studied the idea of identity and biblical image, most people have one or two areas that they're working through. So this isn't me coming and telling you guys, wow, you ought to all have this figured out. We're all trying to work through this, seeing ourselves the way that the Lord sees us. And here we have the first one is this. We would actually say that wrong view of how God sees me and my image in God actually paralyzes me to walk with God. We end up projecting on God how we view ourselves and the relationships we have. And we see, actually see I have an example here in Matthew 25. It's the story of the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents is actually used specifically for someone that's been given ten talents, five talents, and one talent. And it's the one talent person that's actually interesting because when the master comes back to him, he says, uh, what did you do with the talent I gave you? And he basically tells him, well, you were, and he begins to project on him. You are stingy. You, 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 you don't reap or sow. You demand things of it. And I was afraid of you, and I hid my talent. Now that projection, him declaring this is who God is, 
shows that what's in the heart is what we reflect out of our speech, and this shows how we view things properly or improperly. If I project on, now how many of you had an encounter where you were introduced to the Lord and the first thing you became was afraid of him? God was presented to you that, hey, it's either heaven or hell. You want to burn like a french fry, you better get serious about this stuff. And we try to introduce the fear of the Lord to you. And so most people have this idea that, you know, I know that God's received me, but I really don't think he actually likes me or values me. And that comes from a wrong view of our own identity and who God says we are. And we actually see it clearly here in this example. Next one is this. How do you know you have a, a need a restoration of who we are, our biblical self-image? You have what we call defeating attitudes. Uh, your, your default position is to lose hope. It's very interesting how important hope is for the Christians. In fact, it's actually one of the, when it's described in the scripture that the helmet of salvation, it describes it not in Ephesians, but later on the helmet of salvation is salvation and hope. And so it's really one of the ways that spiritual warfare is conducted. You know you have the wrong image of yourself and God when you live in a place of hopelessness. The next one is this. Um, I'm sure you guys are going to be really grateful that I tell you this, but the word for anxiety, worry, and fear are the same Greek word in the New Testament. They just translated anxiety, fear, and, but it's all fear. And so this is important. When fear grips a person to such a point that they can't believe that someone cares for them or they don't want to give themselves to either relationships or serving, it shows there's the wrong self-image. Now, are you guys going, well, gosh, that's just everybody, isn't it? Well, that's the effect that's happened since men, our, our ancestors rebelled and men and women have been born with this thing called um, a wrong self-image. In Proverbs 29, verse 18, an example is given to us about what is healthy. And it tells us this. Uh, without vision, people perish. So what's the, the solution here? The idea that if I have a healthy, restored image of who God is and who he's created me to be, I actually will be visionary as a lifestyle, which means I look towards the future not only with hope, but I can't wait to get there because God's there in the future, and it's always good wherever God's at. So if I don't have a proper uh, example or I understand this correctly, I don't look forward to the future. And do you guys know that literally the first 10 years that I was a Christian, I couldn't wait for the weekends and I lived in despair every Sunday night because I hated what I was doing hated my existence. I knew the Lord during that time. Isn't that amazing? All right. Another one is this. They have a wrong view of the world that they live in. And what I mean by that is it destroys their ability to dream. Okay. Now, how many of you have so uh, I hear this periodically. I'm around the body of Christ. We actually have an ability to reinforce the wrong image in people by how we talk and communicate. Uh, I, you guys have to understand that I check on the news for about literally two minutes and then I stay away from it because it's such a vomit of evil things coming towards me that it makes me have this view of the planet that actually is not biblical. It's one-sided and it's always focused on evil and the effects of evil. And so, uh, I mean, if you get a constant diet of that, you're going to begin to have a view of reality, what you believe reality is, that literally is going to steal your dreams. All right, it's getting kind of depressing. Let's make it a little more depressing. Another one is this. If you look in chapter uh, Numbers, chapter 13 and 14, the, the whole chapters, 13 and 14, 
you have what we call literally in the story of the children of Israel, what we call an incredible example of what we would call the wrong self-image, and it came from what we call living as a slave. Okay? So here, think about this. Moses comes and says God wants to deliver his people from Pharaoh, and their struggle was actually on how they viewed themselves in God's eyes. Can you imagine? They actually get delivered by the Lord, and their, their commentary on it is he's brought us into the desert to kill us. That was actually, if you check the response of the nation of Israel, that's pretty much their, everyone's response. He brought us out here to kill us. He brought us out here to kill us. He brought us out here to kill us. What an interesting view of who God is. He's brought, he delivers us to kill us. And so they, they show this thing called a slave mentality, right? Uh, that's how I coin it. It's not really in the scripture, but it's what we call, this is how slaves see. They see themselves as having no worth and that they are a victim and they cannot amount to anything. That's a wrong view of who you are in God's sight and how he wants you to see yourself. And he wants to restore that. Okay. Another one is this. You could tell... Um, that you need to work on this, or God's trying to help you work on this, if you don't have what we would call a revelation, and it does come that way, of the grace of God in your life, in the sense of bringing you to a greater reality of who God has called you to be. And this kind of, when I say revelation, and a lot of people are confused that, that means God's talking to you, and you're not fighting him in the process where he's trying to tell you, look, I have more for you. I'm trying to bring you into this thing. I don't want you resisting me. Now, we'll get to why people don't receive that when God does it, but we're just introducing this. And hopefully, I can get all of us after this last one. You know you need to have your uh, image restored when you're not living in the joy of the Lord and the idea of being adopted in Christ isn't foundational inside of you. Isn't that amazing? Okay, do we have everyone now? Okay. So how does God actually deal with self-image? Proverbs 23, verse 7 tells us this. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now the word thinks in his heart is really interesting. It doesn't mean just how he has random thoughts. It means an intentional way of thinking about themselves. So this idea where people think, well, you know, I, I grew up in a certain world, and there's just no way of changing things. The Bible's saying, no, you can actually be intentional about the way you think about yourself. And it can change. That's who you really are, how you intentionally think about yourself, not how random thoughts come into your soul. Isn't that interesting? So it's how you intentionally think about yourself. That's who you really are. Now, let's work through how the Bible actually wants you to be intentional about thinking about yourself. When I use the word grace, have you guys had any kind of overview teaching of the word grace? I mean, it's used all the time in Scripture. But grace is really, it doesn't just mean unmerited favor. It's used all over the place in Scripture to mean a lot of different things. It's kind of a, an all-enveloping word. And so when we say the grace of something, we mean the power of God that touches into us. We actually experience it, and we get transformed. So when I'm using the word grace this evening, I'm talking about that. Okay. So how do, as you and I think, so are we. What does God want to do with us in that arena? He wants to bring grace to us. But there are, you guys ready? Uh, if I can say them very uh, specifically, there are four values of grace that the Lord is moving towards you and I and trying to make us have an encounter with his word in our community and in, the, in our own prayer life that a transformation can happen in the way we see ourselves. So the first one is this. It's called the grace of belonging. The grace of belonging. 
one of the one of the most defeating things is to believe you were created to be an isolation. Now, if you guys ever heard this, I've heard it said, and it's it throws it's been thrown around a lot. Well, I'm an extrovert and you're an introvert. So introverts believe it's okay to, to live in a cave and never relate. And extrovert, extroverts, they want to go have a party all the time. Well, there has to be a balance somewhere in the middle of this, and it's called the grace of belonging. There is a lot. Now, when we say the grace of it, it means that God has intentionally made us to have a longing that he wants to satisfy from his presence. And you guys ready? It's called a longing to be connected to community and family. There is a longing in each one of us to have that reality, and it's actually not wrong for that. In fact, for this is amazing. When I first came to Christianity, I, I actually believed that it was the teaching of the word that actually restored everybody. You guys ready? It might be some of that, but it's actually the community that restores people. God brings us into community to be reparented. And so because of that, there's nothing wrong for looking for that. In fact, there's a part of Western Christianity that just really bugs me. You know what it is? It's the idea of coming in a room and listening to someone lecture and having no community. Because that's a longing that we have. It's easy to hide in a room, isn't it? When one person's talking at a group of people. It's hard to do it when I say, come on, let's sit down, as Bob was saying with his grandson. Sit down and have a real conversation with each other. That longing needs to be satisfied in all of us. And if you don't get it in the body of Christ, guess what? You'll find it somewhere else. All right, the next one is this. Uh, there's a grace that's given to us, and it's called the grace of worth. And so I'm always asking people, um, what does worth mean to you? What does it mean to be worthy? And, and it's very interesting to hear people describe what they believe that means. Let's just kind of drive the point home. God wants to restore worth to you. And the, sec the third grace is value, worth and value. So what does it actually mean that God wants to restore worth? When you say this, a lot of times the concept is almost too hard to grasp. God says, now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate something in history that was such a powerful demonstration of worth that it should change the way you look at yourself. But a lot of us think, well, that was 2,000 years. It's something in the Lord's life. It's 2,000 years ago. God is basically saying this. How much value do I place on you? I place on you my view of Jesus is my value that I have towards you because I'm willing to send him to redeem you. And he's saying, now how much love did I have for my son? How much love do I have for you that I'm willing to actually send my son to pay the price for you to be redeemed by me and restored? And so God is constantly communicating to you and I, you have the highest value. You, This idea of being made in the very image of God it isn't just something we throw out. It's a reality. You are above all of God's creation. You are the highest value that he has. In fact, um, the Psalms is trying to be really nice where it says men, uh, I love how it's not translated correctly, but it, uh, men are a little lower than God. It's not the angels, it's men are a little lower than God. So in the economy of value and worth in God's kingdom, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then the human race. Then we have this idea of value. What does value mean? what you're willing to pay for something, what you're willing to give time to, what you're willing to say, this is worth it, I'm, I'm going to do something for this. You guys realize that um, one of the ways that God constantly, I, I for years never even understood this, but God was always trying to relate value to me by the fact that he was interacting with me. 
Think about this. The God of the universe has billions of people that he's watching, and yet he can make himself so intimately known to you that he can communicate, you're, you're the apple of my eye. Isn't that just incredibly dynamic? So he has a billion people that are the apple of his eyes. He's actually able to create that kind of dynamic where he says, you have so much worth to you that I'm going to give personal, undivided attention to you, and I'm going to love you in that place. So have you guys ever been convicted of a sin? Isn't that a fun topic? That's God actually showing value to you. A lot of people think, I hate that whole process. I wish God would just quit talking to me about that. But God loves you so much that he can't leave you in a destructive lifestyle. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> All right. Now, and so what we have is we have this idea that God wants to restore the glory of what he's done back to you and I and call back home his lost family. Right, and then the last one, number four, is what we call the grace of competence. And this is actually a really interesting one. It tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? And it's really interesting, that passage, the before passage, most people don't, they usually just quote that, but the whole concept was about giving. You guys realize? So when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he was actually talking to the church about giving, and then he says, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's actually using something that most Christians don't like doing, which is giving, and he's saying, but Christ can give me strength to do all things. Now, why was he taking giving, financial giving, to the work of the Lord and tying it, I can do all things through Christ? Because he was saying, the very thing that you think is lackful in his kingdom he actually has an abundance supernaturally to do this. You're in a resource that's inexhaustible, so you should be willing to give. Uh, isn't that great? Almost sounds like I was getting ready for an offering. Now think about that. So that actually means that in Christ, where you lack, he can give you himself to accomplish. Um, I'm not going to do another sermon, but I've been studying recently the concept of waiting on the Lord. And the last concept of waiting on the Lord is actually used, the word wait actually means to intertwine, like a rope, trading of a rope. And, and it actually is used in um, Isaiah where it says, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount on wings of eagles. They will run and not get weary. And the word for wait, that intertwining means, where I am weary, he's not. Where I can't mount up on anything, he can. So I learn to wait on him, and an intertwining happens where he comes and infuses himself in me and I in him. And that word for waiting means intimacy and also the release of power. Now, until you experience it, you, it's, it's amazing how God gets us to the point where we learn to let him intertwine with us. We have to actually reach a point where we stop trusting ourselves. So the minute you quit looking to yourself in a resource of any area, you're ready to have God's ability come into you and do more than you ask or imagine. So the biblical people. Moses wasn't Moses until he gave up on himself. He had to murder a couple people first and then go live in the desert for 40 years. But after he did that, he finally just came to the end of himself. It took till the point of 80 years old. Now, for all of you, that should bring great joy to you because most of you are not even ready to serve the body of Christ until you're 80 or 90. No one got a kick out of that. Let's keep moving forward. Now, think about that, though. 
when he finally came to a, the end of himself, now he's actually used by God to be see a nation get delivered and see the most powerful miracles that the human race has ever experienced. And then God sets up a whole entire nation through a man who actually finally came to the end of himself and quit trusting himself to do things. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we could just figure this out and not waste 50 years trying to, how do I finally get to that place? All right, now let's talk about the source of how you have this view of yourself. How did you get to the place where we're here tonight and how you and I view ourselves? And this is important, so let's work through it. First one is this. It's called the outer world that you grow up in. All right, so it's your family mirrors to you value and worth. You guys realize that. So your parents, who they were, how they treated you, what they did for you or did not do to you, all of it was nonverbal communication of value and worth. Okay, I knew it was going to get quiet when I said that. So, families are actually supposed to model relationship in healthy ways so that a communication is intentionally put into people. And it's called value and worth. Now, have any of you grown up in a broken home yet? I just call that the American culture. When you have parents that lack the ability to model health to you, you, have, you walk into your adult life with these things where you believe you have no value or worth because they either didn't model it or they didn't communicate it to you. And so you know that you have a longing for that, but it wasn't imparted to you when you're growing up years. So you try to achieve it by excelling in things. And what happens is the thing you're trying to meet as a longing you put yourself in a position of driving yourself for approval in the wrong place. How many of us are trying to do something in the outward world that the culture deems impressive so we'll feel good about ourselves, where the Bible says you don't even need to go there to get that longing and worth satisfied. You need it in a people that accept you and embrace you. I mean, it's great to have all this stuff, but that stuff is not going to meet that longing because it's non-physical to begin with. And so a physical reality cannot meet that longing. Does that take a little bit of stress off you guys? You guys ready? There's no need to impress anybody for anything. Because them being impressed is not going to meet that longing that you and I have for value and worth. Okay, Brian, is it ever going to get better? Yes, hopefully we'll get there. Also, what we, we have our outer world explains who we are. Then we have what we call our world inside, which is this. How we view ourselves, ready? Physically, emotionally, and spiritually, you begin to interpret who you are in the world that you're raised in, okay? The one thing that I, I uh, my background, part of my background is I was um, a graphic artist, and then I got into advertising. And the whole mindset of advertising is to tell you that there's something wrong with you, and you either need a Big Mac or lick lipsticks or something to make life have meaning, right? And so... And they do such a good job of it, we have literally storerooms of junk telling us that this is what's going to make us happy. By the way, have you ever gotten that thing and then it just sits on yourself and you're like, wow, I'm not really any more happier since I got that lipstick? Uh, especially for the guys. And so think about it like this. The culture tells you you have to look this way. You have to be this way. You have to do certain things. And what happens is as we're trying to grow, if we don't have someone nurturing us into healthy identity, we're going to start thinking we have to be like someone else and somehow that's going to make us be approved of and accepted. 
And what it does is it starts this incredible world where we don't see ourselves properly. We have the wrong standard of how we should view ourselves. And then ultimately, you guys ready? We don't like ourselves in the process. And then when we say, well, do you know God loves you? They're like, well, how could God love me when I don't even like myself? And my whole culture is telling me unless I look like a football player or a model, I have no value. Isn't this fun, boss? <laughs> Good. And then the third one is this. So this is how your image is formed. You have literally Satan and the effects of strongholds that are speaking certain things to your mind, and their goal is to actually steal, kill, and destroy from you. Now, I'm sure you guys were aware of that. That passage in John chapter 10 when Jesus said the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, everybody looks at that as a physical reality. But if you look at the original language, that has nothing to do with the physical realm. It has to do with the supernatural realm. The enemy comes to steal what? Your identity. He comes to destroy your dreams, and he comes to kill any ability that God wants to produce inside of you. It's all a supernatural reality that the enemy is after with strongholds and the way that he speaks to us. That's why Paul is very adamant about saying you've got to understand spiritual warfare because the enemy is trying to destroy the image of God in you. And then the last one is this. God and how you, how he sees you. Now, this is very important. How does God begin, and we're going to start working in a positive way, how does God start restoring your identity? I think it's actually the goodness of the Lord that starts the process. So here we have, I find this amazing. If any of you have ever studied church history, what we would call some of the leaders of church history they all have to have this encounter with the Lord where he restores identity to them. We just call it salvation. One of the ones that I actually thought was interesting is if you guys know anything about Martin Luther. Have any of you ever, any Lutherans in here ever study about Martin Luther? The most amazing thing about him was he actually wanted to serve the Lord out of the, he was afraid of God. And his mentor said, well, you need to learn about you need to study and preach and teach about a loving God until it connects with you. Because as long as you focus on the fear of the Lord and the judgment of God, you're never going to see who God is. Now, are you guys ready? If I have a mindset of not understanding that God is trying to move towards me with his love and his compassion, I'm not able to actually clearly see him because that's how he's working today. Think about this deeply with me just for a moment. It tells us in 1 John that God is. Not that God shows love or he chooses to love. It actually means, you guys ready? The core of who God is, what emanates from his throne, is love. And then we use words to describe it. Mercy, kindness, grace, right? They're defining words, but it all emanates from the fact that from God's throne right now, love is issuing from his being towards us. And he wants us to not only say, you know, how we feel like, well, God is love. Now let's get on to the end times. He wants the, the, the restoration to come back into the proper place. Are you guys ready? The proper place is, I don't need to be worrying about who the Antichrist is until I have the foundation of God being a loving God established in me. Then I can look and figure out who the Antichrist is. And you guys notice how we focus on the, the minor things of the gospel and not the major things? If the body of Christ does not have a restoration of God's love towards them, we're not ready to do almost anything that Jesus has called us to. And that's the idea of the restoration of your identity. Your identity was you were created by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enter into the love journey that they were on 
so that you would be loved just as much as they love each other. Every time I teach on this, I get really intense. Can I see if I can calm down a little bit? Do you like that? Okay. So let's talk about examples of how God actually views you. The scripture actually says this. Now remember, the Bible's trying to be pretty straightforward about God's love. Now you're going, well, these, this is informational. Well, the information is going to lead us into a transformative experience. Okay? So the first one is God's great love towards us and, and the, the scripture that's in every football game, John 3, 16. God so loved you that he was willing, and I think that's the, the concept, not just that he, he gave his own son, but the term he was willing to give his So it actually means that God is intentionally, proactively trying to show you love constantly. You guys like I am, I was so wounded from my, my parents and my upbringing and divorce and all this pain in my life, I could never get across the idea that everything that God was doing in my life was an expression of him trying to show love to me. I kept saying, would you show me your love? And he was doing it all over the place. And I realized I just had these really bad blinders on, and I couldn't ever see it. By the way, if you, if you guys ever wanted a really cool Bible study, I'd encourage you to just write down for a year things that God do, does in your life. We answered this prayer. He showed me this scripture. And then learn to actually interpret that properly and say, oh, that was an expression of love. And that was an expression of love. And that was an expression of love. And just let it actually nurture you. Next one is this, 1 John 3, 1, God has honored you. Um, each one of these words, I could do a whole entire sermon on them. Aren't you glad I'm going to make sure I stay focused? The word honor is really interesting in Scripture. We use the term to mean compliment. That's not what honor means. Honor means seeing somebody, the potential of who they are, and calling them into it. So when it says God honors you, it means he looks at your whole entire life and says, this is who you're, I'm so sorry, this is who you're supposed to be, so I'm going to intentionally love you so you get to that place. Isn't that a good thing to realize? God doesn't get, we think, well, man, how could God walk with me through this? Isn't it good to know that God's already seen your, your end from your beginning, so he knows exactly who you are, and him working in your life right now says he's intentionally, because of who you are right now, he just says, well, these are just the stepping stones to get you to who you're ultimately to be. That actually should bring great joy in you and cause you to rest. And real, you guys ever come into worship service and think, man, I can't even worship the Lord. I'm such a mess this week. As though God didn't know that or know the future or any of that stuff. God is so invested in you, he's going to get you there. That's how much he honors you. And I mean who you really are and the potential that's in you. This has become a really important thing to me. The scripture talks about not seeing people after the flesh. Do you guys remember that? But seeing them after the spirit. Well, what does that actually mean? That means I actually have to look into the heart of God and say, share your love with me about that person or about myself so I can get on track with how you're leading me in my life because you're not into the things we're into. You're into making me be exactly like your son or reach the potential of why you created me. Next one is this, number three, God values you. And, and again, it gets back to this idea that Christ has died for you and I. He's placed a, what we would call almost a numeric value on it. What is God willing to do? Take the second person of the Trinity who's created everything and lay his life on the line for you. By that, I mean, you have to really just sit around and think about that for a while. How much value? That's why this whole thing that goes on that the enemy tries to bring towards you and I, 
that God just doesn't care for you? Boy, talk about a major lie. I mean, that's just such a simple lie. But we just so believe it because we interpret living in a fallen world as though God doesn't care. Next one is it's even more important. It's the idea that God not only cares for you and I, he has actually provided fully for you. Now, um, the idea of provision is really interesting, isn't it? Because when we're not having the provision, right, when we're fully provided for, we feel security. When we're struggling, we think he doesn't care, right? Now, it's amazing. The scripture actually says this. In God's economy, and you have to understand it economically, in heaven, there's this, like, this inheritance that's around you. So when we go through struggles, we think, oh, that means God doesn't care. That, that's not what's going on. The struggle itself is trying to teach you how to access your bank account. So I always try to give this illustration. Let's say that Bill Gates drives down your driveway, drives down your street one day, and sees you mowing the yard, if any of you mow the yard. And he walks up to you, and there's like 10 guys behind him. And he comes up to you, and he says, hey, can we go in your house? I want to talk to you about a contractual thing. You think, why is Bill Gates coming to my house? So you agree. You bring him to his house. Hey, I, I like your computer. Now, I don't like Microsoft or any other products, but hypothetically, you say, I like your computer, even though it has bugs and it's a pain in the neck. And so um, he sits down with you, and he says, you know, I just, I've decided that I'm going to inherit you. I'm going to make you my, my, my legal heir, and I'm going to adopt you. All you have to do is sign these 100 documents. So you sign the 100 documents, they stamp it, and they go, you're Bill Gates' child now. What do you think your life would be like the minute he accepted you as his son or daughter? Do you think anything would change financially? Do you think you'd look at yourself differently? You would go from a place saying, I'm of lack, and you would step into a place of dreaming because there's no limitations on provision. You say, what is it I want to do? What you do for a year is you go travel the world and blow money on all this ridiculous stuff you think you need, and then you'll, re then you'll come to a place where you realize that's not actually what life's about. Life's about living out of my dreams, and God is willing to provide for that, or Bill Gates is willing to provide for that. Think about that. In heaven, that's the bank account you're connected to. When you step into your dreams, you're fully funded to do them. And it's really important to say this. Only your dreams are fully funded, not extravagant, goofy stuff. Does that bum you guys out? Okay. Because <laughs> I keep telling God that I think if I'm going to fulfill what God has created me to do, I really need a red Ferrari. He's never given it to me. I just don't understand why he's not answered that prayer yet. By the way, so I've said that for so many years. I actually had for Christmas someone buy me a match or a match box car of a red Ferrari and gave it to me. Here it is. Now stop talking about it. Still hasn't worked, okay. Answer prayer, there you go. I guess it was an answer prayer, wasn't it? Okay, and the last one is this. How does God view you? God has planned you so carefully. To say that to people, that's really interesting to say. So sometimes we have to step back and just stop living in time for a minute and step into eternity and say, now look, you were intentionally thought of by the Lord it's an expression of love that you're even here on this planet, and how unique you are is something that should be celebrated. Um, I wasn't nurtured and not affirmed a lot. In fact, uh, the only time my parents ever told me they loved me is after I got saved and I started telling them I loved them. So I didn't grow up in a nurturing atmosphere when I was growing up. So one of the values that the Lord started talking to me about it was how important it was to, when I started having kids, to start 
valuing them verbally. So ever since they were little, on their birthdays, we give them gifts and all that kind of fun stuff, but we actually make every person in the family tell them what we love about them, what we appreciate about them, and we try to communicate intentional value to them. We've been doing this for so many years. Now we have, I have two son-in-laws. I'm about to get my uh, first daughter-in-law, and all my kids are going to be married. And as we all come together for birthdays, we have my son-in-laws coming and watching us do this, and they have to participate. Once they come into the family, they have to be a part of it. And I remember them just struggling. And these guys have all grown up in Christian homes, and yet they've never communicate, They've never had their family communicate value to them. Do you know how important it is for the nurturing process to stop tearing people down and actually tell them who you really see they are? Every, every time we come away from our birthday experience, you know no one ever remembers any of the gifts that anyone's gotten them, but they remember what they've said to each other. And so we have to actually be very intentional with each other and help each other recognize, you know that God is intentionally doing this with you, and I'm going to intentionally do this to you also. I don't know what it is with our culture, but we actually create comedy, and we make situational comedy about tearing people down all the time. And yet, why do we do, why do, we do that and think it's funny when people long to actually be strengthened and encouraged and nurtured? I can't even watch situational comedy with my wife anymore. She makes me watch the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> She's had enough of my silly comedy stuff because comedy in our culture is not about being funny. It's about tearing people down anymore. All right, let's do the last thing, and then we'll wrap it up and, and pray for each other. As we grow in proper restoration of our image in God, there's a process that Jesus is doing trying to reveal his love to us. And the way that we can cooperate with it is a simple prayer that I'm going to teach you. It's called learning to dethrone the mind. Culturally, you're taught to worship the mind and think your thoughts are the only thoughts you need in your head. And that's a, it's a form of idol worship that our culture teaches about how we think about things. Now, when I mean dethroning the mind, I'm saying... You stop resisting the Lord speaking to you, and you actually pray, talk to me. That is the process of dethroning that you're only going to think your thoughts instead of allowing the Lord to break in with his thoughts. Okay, And it actually comes to us out of Ephesians chapter 4 that the mind has to be trained by love. So think about this with me. You and I have to actually intentionally be serious about letting God's love come to us and interpreting things with love and letting this, have you ever heard the term renewal of the mind? Renewal of the mind, it talks about in Romans chapter 12. Well, that's actually understanding the transformation that God is bringing to you. And it's, um, the renewing of the mind is amazing. The idea of renewal is it means an is you're being energized by God's love, and you learn to swim in it. That's the whole idea of renewal. Isn't that interesting? So God's presence of renewal is among us all the time. It's whether we want to jump in the water if I can use that analogy with us. So when God is intentionally trying to say, I love you, you're not supposed to look at him and go, how? Or are you kidding me? Or are you talking to the person behind me and I just got caught in the conversation? It's actually learning to posture ourselves before the Lord and go, whether I receive it or not, I'm going to just stand in the flow and let it come because it will change me. Have any of you been trained to have a mind of unbelief and doubt? Uh, that was one of my main problems when I first started walking with the Lord. Major unbelief and doubt. 
And it was, it was came from our first family because I had people make promises to me and break them all the time. So I just didn't think you could trust anybody. And when I came to the Lord, that's the first thing he went after. Why do you doubt me in this? And then I always used to tell him, well, you didn't give me a red Ferrari, and I don't own the island of Hawaii. And it was always on my estimations, right? <laughs> so you guys are like me. You've asked that in prayer also. Please remember, every time God is trying to take you through a breakthrough in the renewing of your mind, you're going to go back to a chapter of your childhood, and God is going to communicate with you about it and set you free from it. So when I am walking in God's love, a lot of people think, well, the love of God means I just feel happy all the time, and I never have to go through a restoration process. Are you guys ready? The love of God takes you back to it. He tells you his perspective from it. He restores you. Now you're ready to come into the next place of restoration. So when God is doing this, don't resist him. Embrace it. Let's go, great, let's go back to the memory. Let's, let's clean that thing up. Let's restore proper identity back to me again so that I don't have to keep going around this mountain of not accepting your love for me and get on with the adventure of walking with Jesus. You guys want to put your notes up for a second? Let's let the Lord engage us. I am so grateful that you're loving. Thank you, Lord, for being that way. Come among us, Holy Spirit. We've intentionally talked about this, and I know your intention from this. Go to those places where we've closed the door and marked off, do not enter, and tear that door down again. We want wholeness. Restore back to us the joy of the Lord. Give us your strength, God. Restore, bring the shalom of the Lord into our minds, into our emotions into our past, into our wills. And let us come into what you've promised and prophesied to us. Let us possess our inheritance. And we thank you for the journey of restoration. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Help me again, what was your name? Ed, and your name? Ed and Sue. I'm gonna. So uh, he was talking to me before the service as I was worshiping. I felt like the Lord wanted me to share something with both of you. Is that okay? Um, Ed, uh, probably everyone knows you. I, I this is the first time you and I, I think, have ever talked to each other while we were sitting there. You have actually a pastoral grace that's actually resting on your life, and the Lord's actually going to use that very specifically to introduce people into the love of God. In fact, your household. Is, I felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you your household is called a house of grace. Because the same thing that's resting on you is resting on her. God is actually wanting to bring people into your home life and who you two are to actually see a picture of the, the beauty of God's love and the tenderness of God's kindness. Does that make any sense to you? Okay, so can I pray for you two about that? So just kind of put your hands out like it's Thanksgiving and let's receive from the Lord. How's that sound? Holy Spirit, bring your power. Bring your presence to your son and daughter. Now bless them. 
I thank you that there really is, they're, they're being encountered by your love very intentionally to shepherd. There is a shepherding grace that's just resting on them. Now let the fullness of that come right now in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you're going to amaze them with how much your love settles things and restores people. And I thank you for that journey that you're taking them on, God. We bless them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You guys mind just standing for a second? Turning towards another person. Just turn towards another person. We're going to do, everyone needs prayer. We don't need two people needing prayer. All of us need prayer. Just turn to another person. If you don't know him, say hi. My name is. Now, you guys ready? You don't have to be professional. Just pray a blessing over them. Let them pray a blessing over you, and then we will be done. Okay, so let's do that real quick. Say, when you get done praying for each other, just have a seat. I'm going to pronounce a blessing over you also, and then we'll be done. Magnum? Oh, yeah, that, there you go. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. Oh, okay. All right, let's please receive the blessing of the Lord. Um, do I need to turn over to you or Paula? Paula goes. I'm going to turn. Oh, hold on. Let me pray a blessing and then I'll turn it over to you, Bob, okay? So, are you guys ready? Receive the blessing of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being among us. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you rest. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Bob.